What happens at laser tag never stays at laser tag. Laser. Laser unfocused tag talk. Laser unfocused tag talk. I feel like you could be like in Ghostbusters or something. Like oh my god, you have got some stories. Let's talk about laser tag. Who knew you were a laser tag legend? Time to get laser unfocused. Tag talk with Tivia. Welcome to Laser Unfocused Tag Talk. Hi, I'm Tivia. As we approach the 40th anniversary of Photon, the very first laser tag arena game and the beginning of the laser tag industry, who better to talk with than the man whose idea started it all? George Carter III is known as the founder of the laser tag industry, having invented Photon, the world's first laser tag game developed with technical engineer James Dooley and launched in Dallas, Texas on March 28th of 1984. I am delighted to welcome George Carter to talk not just about the invention that makes him an icon of laser tag, but also the events along the way that have made for a truly fascinating life. Welcome, George. How are you? Hi, Laurie. I'm doing great. Wonderful. Now... I would love to hear some of your life adventures, your adventures in life and laser tag. And we're coming up on a very significant anniversary of Photon. So I'd first like to know, did you ever imagine that the laser tag industry that evolved on the heels of your original Photon game concept would be going strong nearly 40 years later? Yeah, I thought it had a possibility uh, um, because the initial concept was to make it more like a sport, make it competitive. Uh, so you got return business. Uh, you know, the game uh, would be difficult to change like you can change a video game, but it, because it's, you know, everything's fixed and it would be very expensive to keep changing the field and making things different. But if you have co competition going on, then there's always things that players do that make it different. They come up with new ways to play the game. So, yeah, I did think you had possibility of going a long ways. Well, we're coming up on that uh, 40th anniversary, and that's tremendous. And many people at this point have heard some of the stories behind how Photon came to be and know that you've spoken about the idea of Photon sparking in your mind while watching Star Wars. But so much of your life had already led you towards becoming an innovator well before this time. And in fact, I understand that you had an encounter very early in life that might have been really quite influential towards the path you followed. And I'd love for you to tell me a little about uh, way back when you were an 11 year old boy and you had the opportunity to meet Walt Disney, what kind of impression did that leave on you? Well, I didn't realize it at the time. I, I would rather stay out and drive the Autopia cars with my parents and my great aunt uh, who had arranged the meeting uh, took me in there and it was, and I'd seen him on TV and everything at the time. So I definitely wanted to meet him, um, but I didn't realize he did have an influence at the time, but um he definitely did because I was so impressed by uh, Disneyland. It was so different from what I had been exposed to. Uh, growing up, my parents would take me to water amusement uh, carnivals and uh, circuses and things like that. And, uh, you know, I really didn't like them that well there. I thought they were, you know, kind of crude and I just didn't, I just didn't really go for them very much. I wasn't, I wasn't a big fan of that. But immediately when I went to Disneyland for the first time, not the time I met uh, Mr. Disney, but the, the first time, I was just so impressed. I wanted to see the whole place. And literally, we spent the whole day there, and like everybody does, and went through everything. And it, it turns out my uh, great aunt was private secretary to William Randolph Hearst Jr., who was running the Los Angeles Examiner at the time. And uh, Disneyland wasn't really popular or wasn't very popular initially. Uh, it just was a long ways out from downtown Los Angeles. You had to drive out the freeway into the orange groves out there in Orange County. And they had to do publicity. So uh, my aunt being the position she was in um, was very, you know, could get anything she wanted basically uh, from people because she had direct access to the guy that owned the paper. Um, so we get passes uh, to anything. I went to Dodgers games. I went to all kinds of things in Los Angeles. I grew up in Phoenix, so it was a you know it was a you know, eight hour drive at the time to get over to Los Angeles. So we went over there frequently. Um, so we got this set up for the meeting and met him. Uh, uh, his office was above the firehouse uh, on Main Street. So, and he was a very nice man. He uh, actually gave a present to my aunt. Uh, at the time, it was a, a watercolor done by the studio. 
yeah, with his logo signature on it. Um, and I believe it's an original. This is a, a really special painting from Snow White, is that right? Correct. It, it, it shows Snow White and uh, the Seven Dwarfs on a, a Thanksgiving scene uh, where um, she's carrying a platter with turkey on it into this table with, and you got all the, the Seven Dwarfs, uh, you know, circled around, seated around the table. What I love about this story is there's no way that you could have known at that moment how iconic that would be. But clearly it did have a pretty uh, big impression on you. So what do you most remember as the takeaway from meeting Walt Disney that, that really stuck with you? Well, the quality of everything. Uh, I mean, the, the place was so well kept and, and just everything worked perfectly. And, uh, you know, you, somebody would toss a cup down and it practically didn't have time to hit the ground. They'd swoop in and get it, you know, it just, it was so well done compared to anything else back then. Uh, there was other amusement facilities and parks and there were roller coasters and there were all kinds of rides like that, but they didn't have the quality. And, and then the rides were all really good. And they, uh, it, it had immersion in things, you know, go on the riverboat ride and the, uh, the guide would pull out a pistol and shoot, uh, shoot the crocodile. And, it just was extremely impressive. And I was, you know, 11 years old, but I could, I saw that then and I really, it really impressed me apparently. Are some of those things that you saw, things that, you know, you really wanted to emulate when you got into the amusement industry yourself? No, I didn't think about it that way. I just, uh, I thought, well, this is the right way to entertain people and the way he's doing it. Because it, movies were starting to have good quality back then, it, you know, it, Movies are getting much better back in the, this was the early 50s or mid 50s actually. And uh, movies were getting better. Everything was getting better. Special effects were getting better. But the, the general amusement park had not gotten much better. It was still back in the you know, 30s. Back Carnival started basically because of the depression was the, the reason that most of the, the amusement park started. Well, the idea that you had that meeting and then uh, developed everything that came thereafter. I, I think it's uh, pretty clear that 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 was something that uh, had some influence on you. And Photon was far from being your first invention. In fact, I understand that in 1965, uh, while the Vietnam War was going on, you were anticipating that you were probably going to be uh, getting a draft notice and working on something at the same time. But that notice never came, so you had a chance to work on something instead. Could you kind of tell me where your your first uh, invention originated? Oh, this, uh, I was in college at that point, Arizona State University. And uh, the summer before, uh, between high school and, and college, uh, I went to California and stayed on the beach and worked in a surfboard shop. Um, I had already learned how to work with fiberglass and things like that, so I I did repairs and just general stuff around there. And I was able to go out every morning and go surfing. So it was a, I couldn't have a better, you know, part-time summer job. And uh, so, I, so I did that. Uh, and so when I got back to, uh, to Phoenix, I thought, well, if there was some way to have a, uh, a vehicle, a boat, that would be just for one person, uh, basically a personal watercraft. It would really be fun out on the lake. I realized you couldn't surf in the same manner as that, but I thought this would be fun. Uh, so I went uh, to a surfboard shop, not not in California, but I went and bought an old used surfboard and cut a hole in it and bought a go-kart engine and started playing with it and decided it needed a pump as propulsion because you couldn't have a propeller on the water. Uh, you wouldn't want to hurt anybody with a propeller, so you do an enclosed pump and got working on it and uh, while I was in college. And then uh, during the Vietnam War, everybody's getting drafted. Uh, I was an ROTC and I was just like the perfect candidate to be drafted. And I got called for my uh, uh, physical and to go down and get tested. And everybody that I knew that had that happen within a month, they had been called up. So I actually just quit as a new semester, just getting ready to start. So I. I dropped out and uh, went full-time on the surfboard and my draft notice never came. Whatever happened with that surf jet invention? Uh, we built uh, prototypes uh, with a, and I sold it to a company in, in, uh, in Phoenix 
And we built about half a dozen prototypes. It would have had to retail for $400 for them to make a profit. And they decided that it was, was not possible. They gave up on the idea. And after two years, uh, we just uh, didn't do anything with it. So I, $400 doesn't sound like much now, but I guess it was pretty steep back then. So yeah, the next invention was a uh, little off-road vehicle. Um, and back then in Phoenix, uh, you know, Phoenix got a lot of desert around it, of course. Uh, dune buggies were a big deal. And there was a very successful conversion that was done back then. It was called a Myers-Banks. And you take an old Volkswagen and you take the body off and you cut a section out of the chassis, out of the floor pan part, which was actually the structure of the, of the Volkswagen. And it was shortened, I think it was something like 15 or 16 inches. So the, the car became shorter and more maneuverable and everything by doing that and then put bigger wheels and tires on it. So I kind of um, styled uh, the vehicles that I was working on after that style car. It was a fiberglass body. It was side-by-side -side seating, which, you know, just recently the ATV market has gone to the... Uh, the side-by-side city. And so I ended up selling that product uh, to a company in Northern California. And uh, they, they built a larger uh, all-terrain vehicle uh, called a Coot, C-O-O-T. And the Coot was a rock crawler. It, would, it, it wasn't fast, it would go about 12 miles an hour, but it, would, it was articulate in the middle. It would, the body would actually twist. And uh, it was able to crawl over rocks and rough terrain. And, uh, they were doing pretty well with it, but they wanted to broaden their uh, their market, uh, so they ended up buying it from me, and uh, and uh, I, and they hired me. But I became their racing director because there were some other ATVs around. These six wheelers they used to have with the balloon tires, and uh, they were really popular up north. And because this is prior to snowmobiles, it was just before snowmobiles. And I got to go out and race against those guys. And uh, it wasn't close. I had won by, I mean, I could have lapped them a few times, you know, if I wanted to push it. So it was, uh, it was a fun job going and getting to race the little cars. So. Now, is this what became known as Snoopy? Yeah, because uh, the, uh, I guess the president of the company, of the division, was friends with Charles Schultz. And he asked him if he would uh, accept the royalty. Of course he did. And um, he did accept the royalty and got a, a special Snoopy made just for him. And uh, we named them all Snoopies. And, and the other model that we had was called the Red Baron. So the Snoopy would go uh, well, probably about 30 miles an hour. But the Red Baron would go 50 miles an hour. And over the desert, that's that's pretty fast. You know, you know that quick over the desert. So. And it was fun. It was fun to slide it around the, you know, around the corners and, and just do all the things it would do. But uh, unfortunately for Coot, um, the uh, distributors of, were now distributing both products. And it, one product, the, the, the big Coot, uh, was like $2,500 retail. And the Snoopy line was right around 1000 retail. And people got onto the fact that the Snoopy could go anywhere the Coot could because if there's a big obstacle or a rock field or whatever you couldn't get through, you just go around it. And so the car was so much smaller than the Coot, you could go through a little narrow trail and you could get all the places uh, that this Coot would end up going anyway. And at a much less price, it was actually more fun because you'd go faster. Um, and the car was originally designed to fit in the back of an eight-foot pickup bed. You could put ramps down and drive it right in the back of a pickup truck. So it was, it was just wide enough to fit inside the wheel wells of the pickup truck. So it did quite well. We built, uh, I think it was around 3,000 vehicles, but it hurt Coot's sales uh, with their bigger vehicle, which was more profitable. And they decided to quit. So they said, well, this isn't working out. Uh, we're gonna have to go a different direction. And we owe you a royalty, but uh, we really don't have the money. We're, we're not able to pay you but would you accept some of these vehicles? So I said, uh, I thought about it and I figured out another use for them. And uh, I said, sure, but you've got to build it to my specs. So they had to build Red Baron uh, bodies and they had to put the gear case in them that 
that the Snoopy didn't have. The Snoopy was chain drive and it wasn't as reliable because it had less horsepower. It didn't need to be as strong as a, as a gearbox. So that I had uh, Red Barons built with the, uh, their gearbox in them, but no engine. So I, I wanted, I didn't want the two cycle engine that came in them. So they said, fine. And they loaded up uh, a whole semi truck full, which held 53. And uh, we shipped it to Phoenix. And I opened up an uh, amusement racetrack called Baja Raceway. And I had to modify the vehicles, put bumpers on them, do a bunch of things to them uh, to make them work in it. But it was the first two seat amusement ride. You know, prior to that, everybody uh, rode go karts, which were a single seat. This, this more than doubled the market because of the family business, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, father, son, all, all different combinations. So this actually uh, expanded the market. And I don't think there's a, a place so today, it's an amusement racetrack that doesn't have at least some of the two seat type vehicles. That's amazing. You were clearly you were very forward thinking in all of what led you from point A to point B to point C, uh, because you see so much of that that has evolved and that we're seeing uh, popular recreation today. So that's that's very cool to hear about those origins and to hear how you first got into the amusement industry. So first with this racetrack, and then you had an amusement center and go kart tracks in Alaska and Las Vegas. Yep. Yes, I did. Uh, it was a go-kart track in Las Vegas, uh, and it was just a summer only in, in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, obviously. Uh, but it was during the pipeline boom, and uh, these guys are coming off the pipeline, and, you know, they're on, they'd work for two weeks in a row and then come in and get, you know, four days off or whatever their system was. It was a lot of days on and a few days off, and they were, you know, starved for something to do, and they would come out and drive the go-karts, you know, and they loved it. Well, and eventually you moved on to doing something that was on a uh, grander scale with the Chaparral Grand Prix in Dallas, Texas. And I understand that that involves some celebrity investors as well. Yeah, that uh, actually was the second one of the of the Chaparral tracks. Uh, the first one was in Phoenix at the original location of, of Baja, of the Baja Raceway. So um, during the time in Alaska, uh, I had nine months off in, in the winter up there. I designed a car that uh, would be designed uh, purpose built for going and doing concession work where you're, it's just doing laps for people like a race car. Uh, it was not designed to go extra fast. It wasn't designed for anything else except being very reliable and fast enough to be fun. And so I designed it while I was up there and came back to Phoenix and, uh, took the same track and, and reconfigured it. And the original track was a dirt track. And then, then we had to pave it, of course, because these cars were much heavier and bigger and faster and uh, built the car. Uh, and it was two-seater also, everything was two-seater, and uh, which was a first. There were these Grand Prix race cars around back then. They, they looked like a Formula One. They tried to look like a Formula One car. And uh, we had one of those in town in Phoenix. And, we competed against them very successfully. And uh, basically um, they got irritated with us because we were offering this uh, passenger rides free thing. And I actually got a call from their CEO because they had several of these around the country. And we had to issue a license for people to drive. Uh, they, had, they had to give us their driver's license. We'd hold it and then we'd issue a card, you know, it was their uh, competition license, we called it, and um, and then come back in and pay up, and then they get their license back and go off with their new license. So, so the next time they came in, they were all set to go. And what we started doing, we started accepting the competition's license. They had the similar system, and said, if you come in and turn in your, turn in your license, we're going to keep it and exchange it for a chaparral license. And uh, and then you don't have to pay for that part of it and you get to go out and drive the cars. And our cars were faster by a lot. Also, we had hills and high bank turns and all kinds of things. And the, the uh, Grand Prix track was just flat turns. And uh, so we did this and it was taking all their business away. And I got a call from the CEO and they had probably 40 of these tracks around the country. 
And he just got all irritated. I said, well, it's competition. I said, do the same thing. You compete with us if you want to. And, and he, he just wouldn't give up. He kept uh, hounding us about it. And I said, well, why don't you just offer the same thing? You can, well, uh, you know, offer a, a free uh, license at your place for, for a chaparral license. He said, well, nobody would do that. <laughs> I said, I rest my case so, <laughs> at that point. And uh, they finally uh, gave up and went out of business there and went uh, to a different town with it. So. so you saw success with that pretty quickly, it sounds like. It was very popular, very fast, right? Because these cars were fast. They were they were like 50-hour cars. And what limited their speed was the track itself. Because if you went faster than that, you were going to go off the track. So uh, you couldn't just hold the throttle down. You had to actually brake and uh, slow down for the corners. And uh, and they had roll cages and stuff on them. So they were very safe. We never got anybody hurt. Uh, and it, they were a lot of fun. And the big hills or anything. And... And it was quite a ride for the passenger because um, you're not in control as a passenger. And we had a lot of blind uh, hills and things. You come up over a hill, you're not sure what's on the other side of that hill. And it, it was pretty thrilling for a, particularly a new passenger. So yeah, a I'm a terrible passenger in a regular car. I can't even imagine I, in one of these. Well, that was designed that way on purpose. It, it, and it worked. It, it worked, that's for sure. So that was your first chaparral uh grand prix and then came dallas so yeah, that, tell me about that, moving into your second well the second one happened because the celebrity investors you referred to uh was of fleetwood mac band some of them not all of them uh right across from chaparral grand prix, uh, chaparral speedway in phoenix uh was a uh, le uh, legend city it was an amusement park and it had a place called compton terrace which was a open air venue uh, for rock bands, basically. So they'd have rock concerts there, you know, once a month. And uh, Jesse Nix owned Legend City. Well, you're familiar with the name Nix, N-I-C-K-S. Mm -hmm. So obviously that was the connection. So they came there frequently, Fleetwood Mac. And one night uh, after we were closing, uh, a bunch of limos pull up and this whole group got out, which is all the roadies and the managers and, and some of the members of the band all got, got out and wanted to ride and go out and drive the cars. And we were in the process of closing up and rolling the cars in. And uh, they said, well, we'll just pay cash. And uh, I said, okay, well, that's fine. But how long do you want us to stay open? Oh, just an hour or so. And it turned out to be several hours and quite a few hundred dollars. They kept putting hundred dollar bills out and doing that. And had a really good time, which everybody did though, first time there. And uh, we got the licenses. So I, we have as a souvenir, you know, we had a we had Mick Fleetwood's uh, California driver's license. So you know, I think we probably copied it a hundred times. Uh, anyway, so it, it was it was fun. And as they left, the um, their manager gave me a business card and said, "We're interested in this business. So well, I'll give you a call sometime." But I'd heard that a lot. You know, people come in, they like the business, and they kind of want to invest or do something with it. And hardly anybody ever came back, you know, to, to do anything. But sure enough, like a month later, I got a call to come over to Beverly Hills and meet with us, and we're going to set up a deal, set up some financing. And, and then they gave me the task of going out and finding a place to build the track. And, uh, and they said, any city you want, we'll just, you know, find one with the lands, the right price and, uh, you know, big enough and, and the populations and the demographics are right. And uh, we'll fund the whole thing. So, so I did. I sold the track there in Phoenix and uh, went off to Dallas and Dallas turned out to be the, the best uh, city at the time. It was really, it was early eighties and Dallas was really doing well in the early eighties. Uh, things are just booming in Dallas. So uh, this thing was an immediate success. We got open, you know, and it did great right from the start. So. That's terrific. 
and and a very cool connection to that story. And some of that connection, I understand, you know, really did kind of continue on as you moved into the invention that the whole laser tag community associates you with. Uh, because by 1983, you were on track to develop the equipment and the game that you'd launch in 1984. And it would be a staple of the entertainment industry in years to follow. So tell me a bit about Photon. <laughs> Yeah, well, the way I got there was because the track was doing great. Uh, it was, as a matter of fact, what happened, it was doing too well. And uh, because it was actually a, a real estate play because they bought the property and the, the cars are movable and the, we built a frame building, which was not expensive to build. It was chain link fence. We didn't put a lot of money in the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, a car dealer came and uh, made an offer on the land and they accepted it. it was, I think they tripled their, their original investment. And this was in, in a year, actually less than a year. Wow. Yeah. And except for me, and I was kind of out of work at that point. They wanted me to go take the equipment and go do it again. But I just got through building the whole place. I didn't really feel like doing it again. Plus, I had the idea, you know, since 1977 for, for doing Photon. So the original Photon site... Uh, in East Dallas was only a block away from the Chaparral Grand Prix. Wow. Right there on shallow, shallow and Northwest Highway it was the intersection uh, where Photon was. And just a block um, down shallow was the, the Grand Prix track, which is still a car dealership to this day. You know? Anything significant about how you found that property? Yeah. Uh, I looked all over town. The property was pretty scarce back then, finding uh, something that would, would work for this. And uh, uh, I went over there and finally got a lease done. And uh, the leasing agent uh, is my wife of 40 years now. So that was probably the most significant thing that happened there. To me. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually um, dealt with her company when I first came into town looking for land. I talked to the company and uh, I knew, uh, you know, the company, the developer that she worked for and uh, not on that site, but on another one. But uh, so, yeah, that's how we got together there on that. And, that, uh, and she saw me there working every day and she, she didn't ever do our, she wasn't writing our lease or doing any of that part of it because that was through the, you know, the main office, but she was there every day showing the property and doing that sort of thing. And she's a commercial real estate broker. And I was doing all that. And I was there every day working, building the place and getting the equipment set up and doing all that. So uh, we, we got to know each other, started going out. And next thing you know, it's been 40 years. That's wonderful. <laughs> and so a couple of wonderful things came out of being in Dallas. And, well, you know, so there's a lot of marriages that came out of the employees at Photon. Really? And, and the racetracks. Yeah, that happened quite a, quite a lot. Because, uh, you know, we always, we always had male and female uh, attendants and uh, cashiers in different positions. And, you know, I don't know how this speaks to gender, but uh, they would always sort themselves out. All the jobs were open to everybody. If, if you had mechanical or technical skills, then obviously you'd go toward that part of it. But the, uh, being an attendant out on a track or being the game commander out on the field uh, didn't require any special skill or, or strength or anything except some alertness and being a cashier was the same thing. Uh, so we, the jobs are open to everybody, but they, uh, people just naturally sorted themselves out without our prompting. The cashiers were the girls and the track attendants were the boys. So, uh, and we didn't fight it. And we, there were exceptions at times, but that's just the way they, as they felt comfortable or whatever. So, uh, but then that led to some lifetime pairings, I guess. That's well, yeah, that's what I'm saying because these are all young people. Uh, yeah, they led it led to the you know boyfriend girlfriend, and which led to you know marriages and everything else. So, uh, uh, and we hired uh, almost exclusively students, uh, other than the technical or mechanical positions, you know. The, Certainly, it's made an impact in a lot of different ways. And uh, and over the years, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of questions about this. And we've even uh, discussed in previous interviews a lot of the uh, ins and outs of Photon. But 
what is the question that you get asked the most about your role in the beginning of the laser tag industry? What do people want to know most about Photon? Hmm, that's a good question. There's a lot of questions, a lot of kind of silly questions that come out. Some people say, I didn't realize that it had to be invented. They just thought it, it just, <laughs> just popped up somehow. I don't, I don't know. I, I've had you know, several people say that. Oh, yeah, I guess it would have to be invented. And I guess the main thing is, how did you come up with the idea? That, that was the one. That, and, uh, and people that are technical are kind of amazed that back in, at that time, we were able to put together some of the systems we put together because uh, we were pushing it. We were really pushing our envelope there. Uh, the, the hardware really wasn't quite up to the task. We were trying to do it first and it caught up enough that it, it worked well. But being in Dallas, you were in a great spot as far as being able to uh, capitalize on all sorts of new technology. And in fact, there's one really interesting piece of technology that uh, yeah, everybody who is from that era kind of lived through the rise. And now we're kind of changing the technology. But CDs were a very new technology at that time. How did Photon make use of this? Well, we needed a soundtrack uh, for the game. And, you know, we, we were trying to make the game run uh, like a sport. So there'd be a, a you know time limit and that everybody needed to be, you know, be ready to play in that manner. So we needed to time it. And the only thing around was like a radio stations used to use uh, cartridge, uh, tape cartridges. And that was one method that they weren't precise enough and they, and they always had trouble. It seemed there's always something wrong with them. Uh, so that was out. And uh, so we started looking at video disc. There was an old uh, style video disc out then that had an audio track on it. And it was a, it was a laser disc. And I, I don't even recall the company that came out with it. it. It was only around for a few years. We got a hold of those and some of our guys kind of hacked into it somehow to find out how to do the, you know, how to do the software. And we, we weren't interested in the, the video track, but we just um, sourced the audio track and they, they figured out how to record on it and, and play it precisely. And that, that was genius on their part to be able to figure out how to do that. And, uh, you know, they showed me here, we can probably make this work. And I said, if it works, it'll just keep working and nothing's gonna wear out. You know, if we have to buy a new record player, that's not expensive or anything. But the disc isn't going to wear out. It's all—it's just you know a laser beam hitting the surface, and but they figured out how to reverse engineer and make that thing work. Uh, so that that ran for several months, and and then the actual compact discs uh, were invented and came out uh, shortly after that. And we knew that was coming, so we knew that would be a temporary thing. But that was amazing. It was probably one of the best things they did that they came up with. Why was that precision so important to the game? Well, uh, six and a half minute game, um, which is way shorter than what a typical laser tag game is today, which, you know, I don't agree with the longer games. Uh, we found that out in the go-kart tracks, and the Grand Prix tracks also. Give them short rides, they'll charge as much, they'll always repeat. That way you get a lot of repeat business. Uh, repeat the same time they're there. They'll go multiple times. If you wear them all out in one long 20 minute session, they're pretty well done and they'll leave. And then the price sounds too high. If you're gonna charge you know, $5 uh, for the six minutes and then charge twice that, if you're gonna have like a 15 minute one, that was too much and it, it didn't work. Uh, so, so we always went with the short game and it was the precision had to be there because we had these uh, intruder alerts that happened during the game. Uh, we had uh, other people queuing up and uh, that's part of the reason it's six and a half minutes because we could get another group of people suited up in that six and a half minute time. So you wanted to be able to, it doesn't do any good for cycle time if you've got everybody playing and they come out and everybody's still not suited up. So we knew we could, they could actually suit up in six minutes. So we knew that we were, could do a nice smooth flow that way uh, to keep that going. Uh, and then we wanted the game to end at the same time and uh, precisely. And, and, you know, there was, you could tell from the music, the game was winding down because the tempo would slow down. 
and they would learn every one of the eight tracks. They learned what to listen for. Uh, the good players did. So, so there's a reason for it. There was a reason for a lot of things that people didn't realize that, that actually made it work better. And these are lessons that I think operators can still make very good use of today, especially making use of cycling through the next group while one's playing. Yeah, I mean, that was essential. That's how we ran uh, so many people through there. And the other thing we did, um, we had a hard time with equipment at first because our stuff was cumbersome because it had to be. You know, we just we had to have helmets. We had to have these heavy battery belts and all that. So we had some uh, trees we made that you could hang the helmets on and they rotated. So you could put four uh, player sets on, on one of the trees. Mm-hmm. We made a row of those. Uh, and on one side it was incoming and the other side it was outgoing. So it'd just be one row down the middle and, and they, would, they would rotate around. And, uh, and the good thing about that is the people coming out were always pumped up and yelling and screaming and laughing and having a good time. And we purposely put the scoreboard inside that room, a big monitor up where they could see their scores. And they were high-fiving and, and needling the ones that lost. You know, everybody's having a really good time. And the people coming in just got infected by that same attitude. And they were ready to go when they went out on the field. So, and every time, every cycle, you got the flow going by like that. And it just, you can see what it did there. It just pumped them up. The, the customers would come up with ideas too. Um, the, um, the entry terminal where we had, we had to type in their, uh, their name that would go up on the scoreboard. Uh, they invented the pseudonym, uh, to play by, by their name. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did the release form. Uh, they just had to have, you know, their name address. And we weren't really interested in the release part of it. I mean, you can't enforce those anywhere. And, you know, we're trying to be really safe. And we weren't concerned about that part of it. I just wanted their zip code because that way I knew how big a circle I was drawing from. Uh, and, and we had to hand record all that because at the time there were no scanners and no that kind of equipment available. Uh, so when they did that, did the real name, somebody got on the idea after a few weeks or a month that, hey, it'd be fun to play as Rambo or, or, or T-Rex or whatever, you know, they pick names, whatever was popular back then and get that name and then they would claim, don't use my name, that's my name. And it really helped a lot because they would buy multiple uh, cards, they'd buy multiple uh, licenses. So that that worked and that was something they invented. And then the the thing about the clearing, uh, the the phaser, that was because of customer input because we would listen to our good players and uh, we would listen to what what's going on out there, and a lot. And most of our attendants played. They would go out, and we we wouldn't allow them to do it while they're on duty, but they could come in on different opposite shift and come in and play. And the thing about following one one big guy, good player, following around one little kid and, and shooting with the phaser, you know, time after time had to stop. So we made this thing that three hits on any one player you had to hit something else or get hit uh, or, or your phaser would just would, would be disrupted at that point, it wouldn't work. So, so that was from player input. And we listened to the players a lot uh, about that. And our, um, our actual assembly place and our um, engineering staff were literally next door to the arena. And we had a side door right on the arena so they could during the day, we were closing the daytime on the weekdays. Uh, you know, we opened up, I think it was four or five in the afternoon. They had most of the day where they could te- they could build something and then and then test it uh, and go out and play. And they got to be good players by doing that. Uh, uh, Jim Dooley, you know, the initial uh, technical guy, uh, loved to play. I mean, he played all the time. So, um, and they go out and, and test something out and either say thumbs up or not. And then of course we wouldn't put it in right away until, you know, I took a look at it and, and they would always say, nothing can go wrong with this new software fix here. And it won't, won't affect anything. Of course, then everything would go wrong for a while. <laughs> but uh, we, we did a lot of uh, changes uh, to get it right. By the time it went out to the franchisees, they had pretty well had a, a proven workable system. 
I think listening to your customers is a key ingredient for a lot of businesses, but not necessarily just listening to what they tell you directly, but being in that kind of close proximity, you were probably able to hear a lot of uh, comments about what you were doing uh, that might might not have otherwise been said directly to you, but probably gave you some good input. Am I right with that? Uh, yeah, I used to go out in the parking lot. Nobody knew who I was. I was just, and I was down there during a lot of the open hours in the evenings. Um, and I would go out in the parking lot and it was a typical, you know, storefront type parking lot. And I would go out and park my car where it was close to the door uh, coming, uh, coming out and just sit there on the hood or just lean against the car and just listen to people as they came by. And if they said something particularly interesting, I might even, you know, strike up a conversation and, and talk to them about it and, and got a lot of good input that way. And you're right. They'll, they always will tell you what you want to hear if, unless they're mad or something, but people don't want to tell you something you don't want to hear. And uh, you do you know, any kind of marketing thing. You, you got to be careful about that. But they're just, they're just telling you something that they think you want to hear, but when you eavesdrop, they don't. So, But maybe you get some good input there. And you say that people didn't know who you are and maybe some didn't, but certainly some did because you got a code name of your own, right? Oh yeah, I was the creator. <laughs> How did you get the code name? Uh, I don't know. Somebody started doing it, and uh, I've got a plaque on a wall here right now that uh, it was one of the original phasers. Um, all the original equipment was built uh, with like temporary tooling, and it was built out of fiberglass and, instead of plastic, and and. They had some metal parts or whatever, but uh, we could fabricate. Um, they bronzed one and then um, put a plaque on it, said to the creator. And that, they may have been using that term, but this, that kind of, and that said it at that point. So, yeah. Very cool. So you are the creator in so many ways, codename included. And um, the life of Photon was a few years that you had the uh, the Photon uh, brand, but the aftermath of what spurned off of that uh, is pretty remarkable because we've had this industry that has grown and developed. And I know it's been many years since you were involved in the laser tag industry, but how does laser tag continue to pop up in your life even all these years later? Well, I still get probably one contact a month through the website, through my website. And I'm not, I don't push or, you know, try to, try to do that, but people find me and do that. And, uh, uh, I, I, I like talking to people like that. I, you know, second to, uh, to laser tag is Snoopy. Really? Believe that. Yeah. The, the, the kid will call and say, or an adult will call and say, when I was a kid, my father and I just used to go out and we'd love these things. And, you know, they're asking questions about how to rebuild them, but that was surprising that that's, as few of those we made by compared to laser tag, but, but yeah, laser tag, I get uh, inquiries all the time about various things. And I, whenever I'm at some sort of party where I don't know people, I never mention that because that's all I have to spend the whole night talking about it. Uh, I, I just, <laughs> so people will ask sometimes, are you the guy, you know, and then I'll say, yeah, I'll talk, but I don't volunteer it because otherwise that's all I'll get to talk about the whole night. Well, those of us who get to play it or have, have known about it, find it fascinating. <laughs> so it, it doesn't surprise me that you get a lot of comments and questions about it. And uh, a, a few weeks ago, you and I were chatting about some beautiful places that we'd visited. And uh, you were telling me about how gorgeous you found Wyoming. And when I asked you what brought you to Wyoming, you dropped a very surprising answer. So I'd love to ask you now, what brought you to Wyoming? Hmm. I, I can't remember now. What was that we talked about? Yeah, it was a very surprising phone call I got. Um, I was uh, down at uh, a shop I had in uh, in Dallas working on a car, my hobby, my main hobby. And I get this phone call and the guy said, uh, now you might not believe this, but I represent Kanye West and he would like to talk to you. And I said, is this a joke or you put me on you? Are you one of my friends? You're punking me or what's going on here? And he said, no, no, it's, 
He says, you'll see a certain area code. He gave me the area code and you're going to get a call in a few minutes. And I said, okay. And sure enough, I got a call. It was Kanye West. And he said, can you uh, get up here to Wyoming? We want to talk to you. We saw something about laser tag. And uh, I want to, to talk to you. The world needs more fun. I want to talk to you about it. And I said, okay, I could get up there, I guess. Uh, and he says, well, when can you be here? And I said, well, I'll, I'll talk to my wife and we work something out. And I was thinking, you know, a week or two or a month or whatever. And he said, no, no, I mean today. And I said, no, we can't do today. And so we went around and around a little bit. Finally picked a time that was probably uh, 10 days later. And and it was during uh, COVID. It, COVID had just started. It was early into COVID that people were wearing, wearing masks and doing all that. And I didn't particularly want to go on a uh, commercial airline flight because I knew it would probably take two to get to, to Cody, Wyoming. You'd probably have to do a puddle jumper in there. And so I said, you know, he offered the airline ticket. Uh, and I said, uh, I don't want to fly commercial. And he said, we'll do first class. And I said, that, that's not it. I don't want to be in the cabin with this going on now. We're, there wasn't much knowing about it back then, and I just didn't want to do it. And he says, okay, I'll send the plane for you. So um, we got a private jet that came into Addison Airport, which was um, literally two miles from our house. And uh, we got the, we were the only two passengers on the litter jet. Got to fly up to uh, Cody and, and meet there. And uh, we were met by uh, a young lady driving a Ford uh, pickup Raptor all blacked out and, you know, really uh, evil looking, you know, with the big wheels and black, blackout everything and, and the big engine and all that. And uh, she, she drove us, she was our driver for the whole time we were up there. And the flight crew stayed and right there, the plane stayed and they waited for us to be finished, you know. So we spent two nights there and went out to his, uh, his ranch and we got to have a lot of good conversations with him. Uh, we got to sit in on a podcast that uh, he was doing a podcast. Uh, it wasn't his, it was uh, Nick Cannon. Wow. Uh, we went in there and just sat down on the couch and listened to him do the podcast. So that was kind of different. So it had to be, you know, it was, it was a good experience. When I asked you, what were you doing in Wyoming? I never expected that that was going to be your answer. And then he had his problems and stuff that went kind of south for him after that. So um, but that was when he was doing those music things on Sunday morning, the big choir and all that. Uh, so he, and he had his own go-kart tractor at the ranch. And he was really into fun stuff. And that's what you know, talked. we talked about that quite a bit about what we could do for fun, to build fun things. And so it was good. Now, there is an image that I've seen on the internet of his young face on a Photon ID card. So I've got to ask, was he actually a Photon player? He said he was. He said he was in, in, in I think it was Chicago, the Chicago franchise. And it probably was. I mean, he's the right age or anything. Everything, everything would check out. And I have no reason not to believe it. Uh, and I've seen that too. He said, yeah, I played in Chicago. So, yeah. Unbelievable. Who would ever guess that Walt Disney, Fleetwood Mac, and Kanye West would all somehow be connected to the inventor of the first laser tag? That just seems uh, amazing. Can you share anything that you've been working on more recently? Well, I've been working on uh, military stuff um, for almost 10 years now, so it's, I'm still working on it. It's not, I didn't start recently, but it's you know, things I've been doing for a long time. Uh, because of uh, my laser tag background, it's it's all uh, tactical engagement. Uh, it's the same thing. One of them is very serious. One of them is fun if you do it right. Um, and so I've come up with a way to improve their miles system, which is basically laser tag. They shoot laser beams, uh, but they're doing this at 300 meters. And the problem with the laser if they keep it a pinpoint, um, which you can with a laser, you can keep it very narrow, uh, 
the target soldier has um, different sensors on him or her, I guess now. Uh, so if you if you get a hit, there's a sensor here and a sensor here, but you get a hit right here, it doesn't count. So what they've had to do to compensate for that, they've had to uh, put a lens on and spread the beam a little bit. And they kind of compromise. So this works pretty good at 100 yards, 100 meters, uh, because it's about this big around, which is bigger than the bullet, but still close to being realistic. Problem is, the time it gets out to 300 meters, it's the size of a beach ball. Oh. So that's not re realistic. Also, lasers don't drop. They just go straight line. And 300 meters away from uh, an M4 rifle, that, that bullet will drop several feet because they go on a curved path, you know, a trajectory like that. And uh, so that's not accurate. So they really don't measure uh, marksmanship, actual field marksmanship. Uh, also, uh, lasers won't go through bushes or tents or anything that's opaque. But bullets will go through a lot of those things. So that's not realistic. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why they wanted a long time to, to get a better system. So I got, uh, I think I've got about nine patents now that relate to this. And uh, that's a system now that uh, we're hoping we can get uh, replaced and get the, our, our armed forces to use this. It's really interesting to hear how things from the laser tag of 40 years ago are now starting to come full circle in different ways in, you know, what you're working on at present. And um, also even just the people who appreciate and remember back. Now, there's a laser tag arena in Kenner, Louisiana. It's called Game on Social Hub, and they feature a modified photon style arena build where People can play laser tag today. It's complete with the iconic towers and trapezoidal doorways. And I wonder what you know of that and uh, what you think about the fact that the Photon Arena style was so iconic that it is still inspiring homage all these decades later. I think it's great. I, mean, I believe I know what, what you're talking about, the one you're talking about. And I think it was the same guy that had the one in Baton Rouge. Correct. Okay. Uh, which was very close to the Photon Arena. Uh, very good facsimile of it. Uh, I think it's great to do that. And uh, I still like, you know, the way we did it. Uh, and I still like the fact we could run, we could be athletic. Uh, we never had any serious injuries. We had, we had sports injuries. Uh, you know, we had carpet six feet up the walls everywhere. We had carpet on all the, you know, the barrier walls in between, uh, carpet on all the floors and all the bunkers and everything. Uh, so it wasn't uh, that dangerous, really. We played it even, let, even if you let people run. And and they're lugging around 15 pounds of equipment, so they didn't run for very long. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just thought it was better. Uh, and, you know, when we finally quit uh, business, uh, we were going to get rid of the helmet. But I think the helmet really helped initially because it gave you that, uh, that kind of an isolated feeling uh, when you're out there, uh, unlike when you can look all around and easily see what's around you, it gave you this tunnel vision, which kind of, was kind of scary in a way. I think that helped the game a lot. And also the helmet, uh, because we had to run at uh, hobby frequency, radio frequency, the helmet had a coiled up, uh, I think it was a one eighth wavelength uh, coil in the top of the helmet, which was very efficient to get the radio signal. And that's, you know, the two big cables that go down from the ears on the, on the helmet. Uh, one of those cables carried the, uh, the radio signal. So, so we had a reason for everything. I mean, it's just, we'd, we'd find a problem. And I had some really good problem-solving engineers. Uh, Jim Dilley was excellent at first, uh, just doing the rough prototypes and uh, he was a coder, and uh, he, he wrote all the code and designed the circuits. And that's how we got the initial stuff working. It didn't work very well, but it, it gave us a starting point to make it better. 
And then I got some good engineers that came along that were more disciplined and were more trained. And then they got it up to a much higher level eventually. For So at the time when we finally quit, that last batch of equipment was as good as it could be with the equipment that was available at that point in time. I just wish I would have had some of the pieces that are available today. How do you think Photon would have been different if you did have that technology available? Well, it had been so far ahead um, that you'd probably use it for other things first. But, you know, I got that a lot too. Uh, when I go, you know, the big downfall of the Photon along was trying to get funded all the time. And one of the things I would hear, uh, I would hear from financial people, they would say, uh, this is great technology. You need to find a better use for it. And that always irritated me because I thought, well, people are having a great time. The companies are all making money. This is all working. What's a better use? You know, you tell me what's a better use. So, but uh, I heard that a lot. They, did, they, they thought it was trivial. They thought it was a fad, you know, the word fad all the time. Did you think that? No, I didn't. I didn't think it was a fad. And I, I wish I would have gotten to that rough stage of getting funded, you know, to get to the next stage and be one of the, you know, I knew I was not going to be the only manufacturer and the only operator, but I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to still be doing this now, you know. Uh, and I thought I was, but, but you know, we hit that brick wall with the, with the funding and had bad timing on that. So, so be it. Well, bringing all that full circle to where we are now, for the past 10 years, the date of March 28th has been significant, and it's been annually recognized as International Laser Tag Day. And that date is, of course, the anniversary of the grand opening of your first photon center in Dallas, Texas. So each year, the Laser Tag Museum recognizes a different laser tag system on the commemorative International Laser Tag Day poster. And I am delighted to announce that this year, in honor of the 40th anniversary of Photon, the poster is going to feature you, the inventor of the very first laser tag game, alongside your vintage Photon equipment that you created. And the poster is now available for download at lasertagmuseum.com. So do you have any thoughts about all of this as you reflect on the 40 years that have passed since Photon started it all? Well, you're going to have a really old guy doing it and dressed up in photon gear here. <laughs> we, uh, I really appreciate the honor of that being done. Uh, and it's, it, I, even when I was doing it before, I, I didn't do this when I was really young. I was in my 40s when, when I did this initially. Uh, so it, it, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, but I, I just don't know how to put it in words. It's just, it's really good to be, have done this because I get so many people saying, you made my childhood fun. I've heard that exact sentence, I don't know how many times. So. And now some of those people who enjoyed laser tag at the very beginning with Photon are bringing their kids and even their grandkids to laser tag centers to enjoy something similar in uh, in the opportunities that are available today. So you impacted lives well beyond what you probably ever could have expected at that moment, but it, it perpetuates and continues on. And so on behalf of anybody who has ever played laser tag, I'm just going to say thank you, George, for the creation that gave birth to the laser tag industry. It's remarkable. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, I like to traditionally end my podcast with some rapid fire tag talk. I throw some quick questions at you for some quick answers back. Are you game for that? I'll try. All right. Question one, what was the most memorable photon center you ever visited? Uh, well, it was our own in Fountain Valley, but uh, next to that, I would say the one in Japan. It was all stainless steel and, and uh, it, it looked it's so different than what, you know, what we recommended. But it was it was well done and it was it, and they did well uh, so can't complain about that. But uh, it is it was really uh, the most elaborate looking ones in a, in a way. So it was very impressive. I spent ten days over there during their opening. Very cool. 
What was the most unusual party or special event that you can recall happening at a photon center? Hmm. Well, we used to get all kinds of uh, Hollywood celebrities come to the uh, the one we had in Fountain Valley. Uh, they would come in from LA in limos and stuff and play. And we had a bunch of name, you know, big, big name celebrities come in there. And uh, I have a picture of me standing next to Gary Coleman because he came all the time. Little Gary Coleman. Oh, of course. Uh, um, so I'd say, you know, that, that group is the ones that, that I remember, uh, because I heard stories about what, uh, people coming in at the franchise, which I'm sure are true. So I think most every celebrity has been to, has been to a laser, has been to a photon, really. That's amazing. We got so much publicity, you know, they, they couldn't not hear of it, you know, so. Any yeah. other names come immediately to mind of people, you know, enjoyed photon? Uh, who else? Uh, Chevy Chase used to go uh, to the Fountain Valley one all the time. And then we had a lot of local celebrities that would come, come to the ones that we were at all the time. And you'd hear stories and, and you'd have a lot of sports guys, you know, would come in, uh, you know, football and basketball players and that. Uh, they usually didn't do very well. <laughs> they, they were too big <laughs> to fit the equipment. Um, and then we had, uh, occasionally we'd get like a SWAT team uh, that would come in, um, an actual, you know, city or county SWAT team would come into play and they never could beat the good players because we were playing in our home field and we played so much more. And they thought they were going to come in and just, you know, wipe us out. But, uh, that was always interesting when they would come in. What's the coolest place you've ever played any kind of laser tag other than one of your own photon arenas? I've, very, I've played very little with other places. Uh, let me think. Uh, there was one in um, one in Dallas for a while, out in, uh, in Plano, I think. It was set up with a militaristic uh, theme, and I thought that was done pretty well. I can't remember the name of it, but of, of the you know, there's some the militaristic style didn't really catch on a lot. Um, but uh, that one was very well done for that style. And uh, it actually they they made their own equipment and everything and it, it, it looked good. So I would say that one. But I, I really had never played very much. Well, knowing that, I'm all the more honored that five years ago you traded some shots with me in an arena and we got to play a, a brief experience at LaserQuest uh, in honor of the 35th anniversary of Laser Tag. So I thank you for giving me the honor of being able to say I was one of those few experiences that you might have played with, uh, because that but meant I, a, a great deal to me. As I recall, you won. Oh, who keeps score? <laughs> <laughs> now... You've met a lot of really cool people along your experiences. Who would you say is the coolest person you have ever met through your laser tag experience? Um, I wouldn't say he's cool, but the most different uh, character that I've ever met is Gary Busey. Another answer I would not have expected. <laughs> well, he hung out with Fleetwood Mac. Oh. And he was at our grand opening party uh, for Chaparral uh, Grand Prix. So, uh, and then he would show up at uh, some of the photons. Uh, we heard heard he did. I never saw him there, but uh, I did did meet him. Uh, he was a very different kind of person. Second to the last question: favorite brand of we never run in the arena shoes, or back in the day, maybe favorite brand of we run in the arena shoes. Favorite brand? Uh, I don't know. I always had Skechers. When I really? Yeah. I running is only good at certain times. It, the, the really good players didn't run a lot. They they would get from point A to point B quickly, and then they would settle in there. And if that wasn't working, they would go to point C. So that they wasn't this constant running. The the guys that ran constantly wore themselves out. Uh, and. Uh, there were some, I, I, was, I used to go on the observation deck and watch the good players play and, and see their style and everything. So there was definitely a style to it of what they did. Okay. And final question. 
favorite laser tag memory? If you could pick just one favorite memory from when Photon began to now, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I think uh, one day at the Dallas original one before we ever did franchise or anything, uh, sitting in the bunker with um, probably half a dozen of the crew, sitting there listening to the game music and drinking a beer. And it was after hours, we already quit, you know, gone for the night and uh, just sitting there and looking at all around and everything still had the, you know, the music playing everything sitting there, looking at all that and just, I don't know, I was just kind of marveling at how this all had come to be. And it was, it was you know, probably four or five months after we'd opened. And I, I still remember that night. I still remember that sitting there looking at everything. That's great. George, you have had a remarkable life and I appreciate all the stories that you've shared beyond anything that we already know about Photon. You've uh, certainly opened up some some real insights and uh, I, I thank you so much for the time you've taken. That is my guest, George Carter III, inventor of Photon. Thank you for sharing some adventures in life and laser tag as we approach the 40th anniversary of the game. Thank you so much, George. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this episode of Laser Unfocused Tag Talk. Listen for more episodes on the first and third Friday of each month. Want to be a guest on an upcoming episode? Find out more and follow my blog and website at tibiachickloveslasertag.com. Music